sign that that has happened, which I've completely forgotten. Was it? Uh, <laughs> oh, we're good to go. Okay, I got a message. That's what it was. Okay, members, everyone is very welcome to the meeting. Uh, the meeting is being recorded and broadcast live as well online. Uh, could I ask all members, as ever, with these meetings, just to make sure that their microphone is switched off if they are not uh, participating and only to switch their microphone on whenever they're making contribution. That uh, leaves less feedback coming through the system and, and sounds and noises. And also to use the raised hand function, which I will endeavor to do my best to keep an eye on down the left hand side of the screen uh, for people whenever they're looking to talk. And just a remind as we get used to this and bed in that once you, you click the raise hand, once you get selected to speak, if you could just unclick that again, because it needs to be um, deactivated as well. Um, as ever, for our second week, we're on a fully virtual uh, meeting format. And just to ask uh, all of the uh, members, officers, uh, and public just to bear with us that there may be an occasional uh, technical blip, but probably only if Trevor asks us to go into committee again. But we'll find <laughs> him up there for that. <laughs> okay, Clark, can I ask Michael if there are any apologies? No, no, none received, Chair. Okay, so we just, uh, there might be a standing apology for Stalford, which I think maybe we should record at this stage, but um, we'll wait and see um, if the other Trevor joins us then. Folks, I'm just moving into Chairman's remarks then. Um, if I could just begin by maybe some conversation about the protocol issues. I mean, this committee is tasked with scrutinising the work of the executive on Brexit. And it is fair to say that there have been a number of issues from the end of the transition period. So the impact of exiting the EU was always going to be a multiple task and um, it was never going to be a small undertaking and there was going to be no easy way to manage that. And that's certainly one of the reasons why I supported Remain. But I accept that we are where we are and that we must use democratic means to challenge it and that this is the only acceptable way uh, to cha uh, challenge matters pertaining to Brexit, and I think that we all have to recognise that words are powerful and that words can have an impact. And it can be easy for us to think that we are simply participating here in a Starleaf for a Zoom-type meeting, but actually the comms people do tell us that there can be up to 100 people observing this committee meeting as an example, uh, and what we say here can be amplified out into the community, and it's why we must continually moderate our language, moderate our tone, uh, and moderate our behaviour. Uh, and let's remember back just a few weeks ago when former President Trump made his remarks in one part of Washington and a mob moved down and, and tackled the Capitol building a short while later. I think that just it's how words uh, can have a massive impact and it's important for us as politicians to be careful. So I would urge the ministers and our executive to tone their language down and to dial down the rhetoric and urge everyone to take a long, deep breath before participating in any protocol debate. And with cool heads prevailing, we'll let the elected representatives in problem-solving mode, not problem-enhancing mode, uh, do our work to seek the solutions and the resolutions to the issues that are identified, and some of them which are just a few weeks old. Um, I also would like to maybe add my voice to the condemnation, as I'm sure the whole committee would, uh, to the shooting that took place last night in North Belfast, in which a man was shot dead. Violence can play no part in a civil society and such actions are reprehensible and must be condemned. And my thoughts and prayers uh, are with the family of the victim at this time. 
And also it would be a miss not to condemn the actions against the constituency offices of our colleagues in the Strangford constituency. Likewise, there's no taste for an attack on democracy in a manner like that. And those members going about their business in their constituencies and their staff must do so knowing that they are going to be safe. I also need to update members that yesterday we um, met with and gave evidence to the Shannon Brexit Committee. Uh, I was a little bit disappointed with the attendance at that. There was just myself and Martina and Emma, certainly not disappointed with those attending, disappointed with the uh, lack of people attending. Um, when we gave evidence to other committees, such as the House of Lords and, and others, there was an excellent turnout. And I know that the committee yesterday really appreciated our input and said that they would like to have continued interaction with us. And I think that that is really important because they can influence people that are sitting at the table on the European side. And I think it's important that we raise the issues, the concerns and the problems that we all have uh, so that they can use the opportunity to go uh, and try and influence people, try and resolve issues. There's not much use in just shaking a stick at a problem. I think you need to get around the table and actually deliver some sort of, uh, of coherent response. And of course, the North-South element of the Good Friday Agreement, which established institu these institutions that we're part of, uh, allows us to be able to interact North-South and East-West to be able to deliver resolutions. So I would ask if people could make a special effort to attend those. And one outcome from yesterday was that they, as a committee, have asked to give evidence to our committee so that we could have another meeting. And I would make that a proposal. And I think that they have indicated that if it suited our committee, the 10th of 10th of March, I think, is the date uh, that they would be interested in putting that into our forward work programme. So would members be happy with that? Okay. And then Here. I would just like... Here. Uh, yes, go ahead, Emma. Yes. I was just going to say, just in advance of that, obviously that gives us just over a month if we can ensure that that members are going to be in attendance because i know you've, you've touched on it there yourself but i know that the other members of the shannon committee yesterday had had made reference to the fact that you know the conversation that we we're having were, was about brexit and particularly in, in wake of the the threats or the talk of threats at, at Lauren yesterday uh, that it was unfortunate that there was no unionist representation and in light of the conversations that are ongoing throughout the media over the past 24 hours I think it's important that we have these these conversations openly and that everybody is at the table so if we can have a sort of an opportunity before that just to ensure that there's going to be maximum representation because it doesn't really if it's just an echo chamber it doesn't really make make much sense and there's no benefit to it. it would be good to have as many members as possible present absolutely and hopefully with the next one being a presentation to our committee that that we will have our normal committee attendance at that and that will hopefully help to appreciate that yesterday the committee uh, the assembly was sitting uh, yesterday and that it was um, quite quickly organized and there may have been other priorities but i appreciate emma yourself and martina for coming along and helping because it was two hours, and that would have been a long grilling on my own uh, for two hours answering uh, questions. Look, finally, under Chairman's business, I want to uh, offer best wishes uh, to former Junior Minister Gordon Lyons, who is currently taking up the role of the Agriculture Minister, Dara Minister, and also to wish um, Gary Middleton well in his role in the period ahead, taking on the Junior Ministerial role. I'm sure that we can offer it to Gary uh, our best wishes and assurances that we'll treat him well whenever he comes to the committee uh, and put him under lots of pressure to ask questions. But we certainly uh, wish Gary well in that role. Uh, Martina, 
your hand is up, but your screen is blank. Uh, maybe we'll get you back in. Maybe it's probably on the matters arising, but we'll pop on and we can come back to Martina to see uh, what it is that she was contributing on. Item three is the uh, draft minutes. Um, they are uh, a draft minutes of the meeting that was held on the 27th of January. They're at page six of the meeting pack. Are members content that the minutes are a true reflection of the proceedings? Okay, I shall take that as yes. Yeah. All right. Okay, there were no matters arising uh, from that for myself. Anybody else, any issues they want to raise from the last meeting? Okay, well then I think we can move on to item five, which is the High Street Task Force. Um, we will maybe ask Combs to bring Chris Stewart up into the spotlight for us. And also maybe while we're doing that, if I could just ask one of the, uh, maybe one of the committee, maybe Craig, if he's listening, uh, or Carla, if maybe you could just check with Martina because to see that she's dropped out of the, the call. So there may be some problem if somebody could check in with her and then we'll work with comms if she comes back into the audience to move her up into the spotlight again. But Chris, you're very welcome. Um, again, thank you for coming along for uh, today's uh, meeting to give us an update on the High Street Task Force, which is obviously uh, a very important issue and a very keen issue at the minute. There are significant problems with the high street that were pre-existing and certainly COVID has continued to exasperate those problems and amplify them and people on those high streets and those businesses will be looking uh, to the executive and to Stormont for some assistance and direction. So maybe if I could pass over to yourself to give us a bit of background uh, on the high street task force and then we can follow up some questions afterwards. Thank you, Chair. Uh, good afternoon, members. Uh, Chair, you've summed it up, uh, I think, very neatly in terms of the scope of this particular set of issues and, and its importance. This is a follow-up to uh, the written evidence that we provided to the committee, uh, I think, back in November. Uh, it seems a, a while ago now. Unfortunately, I can't give you a definitive statement of the outcome uh, on this matter today because it's still with ministers for decision. But I can provide members with an update on the work done since November and an indication of emerging ministerial thinking uh, on, on taking this forward. As the paper indicates, uh, the, the work began uh, with an initial scoping exercise involving officials from a number of departments. And I think this just illustrates the breadth of the challenge involved because it was necessary to bring together colleagues from communities, infrastructure, uh, economy, DERA, because uh, small town and village high streets are important in this, and also, of course, the Department of Finance. Uh, that officials group examined the, the range of existing initiatives uh, that are ongoing, and that's everything from public realm interventions in support of high-profile events. Members will remember what was done in support of Giro d'Italia. Uh, other interventions such as city deals, and the ongoing Belfast City Centre Regeneration Task Force. We also looked briefly at a previous incarnation of the High Streets Task Force here in Northern Ireland, and of course the uh, existing similar initiatives in other jurisdictions. And in particular, we focused on the English, Scottish and Welsh uh, High Streets Task Forces. We followed that up then uh, with some engagement uh, with individual stakeholders, a uh, broad range involved there, Retail Northern Ireland, Confederation of British Industry, Hospitality Ulster, Institute of Directors, Northern Ireland Retail Consortium, Northern Ireland Chamber of Commerce and Trade, Federation of Small Businesses, 
Nikva, Nilga, Belfast City Council and Nagiktu. Perhaps one of the most surprising things uh, in that engagement was the very, very high degree of consensus amongst that very broad range of stakeholders on uh, the issues to be addressed. And you summed them up, Chair, in, in your opening remarks. It's recognised that our town and city centres face a range of economic and social challenges. Um, whilst the COVID-19 pandemic has exacerbated and accelerated many of those problems, many of the challenges are long-standing. Uh, and they predate uh, the uh, pandemic. And they stem from factors such as the financial crisis way, way back in 2009, some prolonged underinvestment in some of our infrastructure, and of course, uh, changing patterns of uh, retail and consumer behavior. And again, we've seen some very stark examples of that, even in recent days, uh, in terms of some of the announcements that have been made. Stakeholders are very clear that this calls for a strategic response they recognise there are no quick fixes uh, on the high streets, although there are things that urgently need to be got underway. It needs departments and local government uh, working in partnership to deliver a vision for sustainable town and city centres as thriving hubs for retail, services, hospitality, residential sectors, much more of a mixed economy than perhaps we've seen in some high streets in the past, and to view them as places, as communities, or ecosystems and not just uh, single sectors. So we, we also looked at established and successful good practice elsewhere. And again, there are a number of common themes or elements uh, that, that emerged very quickly. Firstly, successful task forces all have a long-term vision and a strategic approach to delivery. They all have at their center uh, local civic leadership and capacity. Local government really has a very key role to play in this. They have a role in contributing to and influencing policy, and they see access to ministers as being very important. And they have a role in what we often call joining up and bringing together a range of programs and initiatives, both new and existing, to increase their synergy and efficiency. That was particularly strong in the Welsh task force. They'll have a role in the production of guidance and, and best practice, and they'll also have a direct delivery role in projects and, and funding schemes. So again, common to all successful task forces is that very broad range of functions, everything from influencing policy and strategy right through to direct delivery uh, at street level. That in itself is quite a challenge. The next step uh, that ministers asked us to, to take was uh, before Christmas to establish a reference group, uh, a sort of prototype task force, if you like, and that involved colleagues from Retail Northern Ireland, Hospitality Ulster, the Business Alliance, which is CBI, IOD, and Chamber of Commerce, uh, NILGA, representing local government, and the relevant executive departments uh, that I've mentioned. So that reference group was asked to develop terms of reference for the task force proper, to advise on additional membership, and to examine in a wee bit more depth the Scottish, Welsh, and English task force approaches, and then to make recommendations uh, to TEO and the due course for the executive. And the expectation was and remains that additional members for the group uh, will be added uh, and the group will transition into the full High Streets Task Force in due course. And ministers helpfully provided a steer to uh, inform the group's work, and that had a number of elements. Firstly, ministers endorsed uh, the, the need for a vision, and they asked for that to be, to be developed uh, in the following terms, uh, to focus on a strategic response to those economic and social challenges 
with departments and local government working in partnership to promote uh, sustainable developments of town and city centres as thriving hubs for retail, services, hospitality and residential. So very much in line with uh, what we had seen in uh, existing good practice. They also asked for a bespoke approach, um, particularly tailored for Northern Ireland, rather than just lifting a model from somewhere else and replicating it. But they did point us toward the Scottish task, for, uh, task Force as being a good place to start uh, in terms of drawing up uh, a template, but we weren't limited to that. Thirdly, in terms of scope, uh, ministers emphasised that we should include all towns and cities and villages, um, recognising uh, the, the importance of rural communities in Northern Ireland, but that we shouldn't overlap or duplicate the existing city deals initiative in any way, but seek to complement that. In terms of structure and uh, governance, uh, ministers made it clear that they didn't see us didn't see the need for uh, a quango or a formal body to be established. Rather, the task force should be an informal structure, but one which needed to operate in a very clear governance framework uh, of program and project management. Uh, learning from some uh, recent lessons in that regard, it should have a project board uh, chaired by the junior ministers and would include key stakeholders as full project board members. Again, ministers emphasised the importance of co-design and full participation. It's certainly not something where we merely consult uh, stakeholders on that. The reference group uh, endorsed that mission and, and, and pursued it with alacrity. Uh, they met four times before Christmas. Again, a very high degree of consensus amongst the members. Um, I'm very grateful to them for the very positive and constructive engagement by all of them, particularly at such a difficult time for their sectors and for many of their members. Uh, so they provided recommendations to ministers that built on the initial scoping paper and which reflected back that steer given by ministers. Uh, that is still under consideration. Ministers are looking at it very carefully. But they have given some uh, indications of their emerging thinking uh, and asked me to share them with you in terms of the vision, the role and the membership uh, of the task force proper. So firstly, in relation to the vision, ministers have uh, accepted and endorsed uh, the form of words that the reference group uh, offered. So it's a pithier version of what I've talked about already, and it's this sustainable town, city, town and village centres, which are thriving places for doing business, socialising, shopping, being creative and using public services, as well as being great places to live. Secondly, in terms of functions, uh, ministers looked at the five functions that were recommended by the reference group and agreed uh, that they are all required, but with one important caveat. And those functions are COVID-19 recovery, influencing policy and strategy, developing capacity, developing and promoting good practice, and driving and supporting intervention and investment. Now, the important caveat is that ministers have decided that Given the urgency, the immediate work on COVID recovery uh, as it relates to the high street should be taken forward by the existing executive COVID-19 task force. Um, that will leave the high streets task force to concentrate on the other four functions, which are rather more uh, strategic and long term. But of course, the two task forces will work very closely together. Thirdly, on membership, uh, the reference group did not recommend any additional uh, members beyond uh, the group itself. But ministers have decided that it's important for the task force to have a very broadly based membership to reflect the breadth of vision uh, that they've set 
for town and city centres. And therefore, they're actively considering additional membership from local government, the universities, uh, the voluntary community sector, the culture and arts sector, tourism, uh, and the housing sector. Uh, and they hope to reach a, a conclusion on that very soon. Uh, ministers have also asked us to now look beyond uh, the British Isles uh, and to uh, Europe and indeed beyond, uh, because there are a number of international examples, I think, of innovation and good practice uh, that we can draw on in, in the work of the task force. They've emphasised that sustainability will be a very important theme of the work going forward, and the task force needs to equip itself with experience and expertise in that area. And of course, we'll draw on uh, our colleagues in the Strategic Investment Board, probably for that, uh, and uh, indeed other competences uh, as well. Uh, ministers have confirmed that the task force will be jointly chaired by the junior ministers. Uh, finally, Chair, ministers are keen that the task force begins its work uh, very quickly. So once the final membership is, uh, is agreed, they've indicated they'll move very quickly to convene the first meeting uh, and set out a timetable for the work going forward as a, a matter of urgency. Chair, that's a very quick uh, counter over the ground. Happy to add light and shade to that uh, as best I can. Okay, Chris, thank, thank you very much for that, uh, that that report and update on where the COVID task force, uh, sorry, where the High Street task force is. And, um, you know, I think really I, I reflect that sort of pre-COVID, uh, the High Street was, was on its knees. Uh, and I think COVID has just pushed it completely on its back. Uh, and that they really are uh, feeling like they are uh, bewildered and disorientated being able to try uh, and adjust. And whilst I suppose maybe as a first question, I can understand that there is inevitably a connection between the COVID um, uh, situation and, and, and its increase in the speed at which there's been an impact on the high street. And whilst the executive task force is obviously going to take over the COVID recovery element in the in the early stages, is there any assurances there that given that the, a lot of these issues for the high street predated COVID and will continue when COVID is gone, um, is there just an assurance that that any sort of work by the executive task force won't usurp or prevent any work of the high street task force so that it can it can do its work and continue on and that the COVID is something that dovetails into it? Yes, Chair, happy to reassure you on that point. That's exactly, I think, how ministers see it. They've recognised that the high street task force is strategic. Uh, they haven't reached a firm decision yet, but it wouldn't surprise me if they uh, cast that work probably in terms of a three to five year uh, time span. Certainly will go beyond uh, the, the current assembly mandate. Now, you know, hopefully we'll see the back of, of COVID and the, and the back of the COVID work uh, long before then. But I think there's a recognition that the High Street's task force work is, whether we like it or not, is starting off in a COVID context. Um, to a degree, will will be shaped by the COVID-influenced world that, that unfortunately we, we dwell in now. But um, the problems that the high streets have, you rightly say, that they've been generating for 10, 15, 20 years. Uh, I'm not saying it'll take us 20 years to make progress on them, but certainly well into the next Assembly mandate, perhaps even beyond. There's a lot of work to be done to, to undo uh, the, the, the years of, of change. It is extremely challenging and extremely difficult. I'm conscious that from time to time it, sound, it might sound as if we're sort of signalling that we're abandoning retail. Absolutely not. Retail will continue to be very, very important and, and a key element in our high streets. 
what I think all of the stakeholders recognised, uh, and Glenn Robertson colleagues have been very positive and supportive on this. There is a future for retail. We need to secure the future for retail, but it's a different future. The, the high street retail offering will simply not look like what it looked like even 18 months, two years ago, and we've seen that change very much accelerated by COVID. Yeah. And, and then, Chris, in terms of obviously looking at other, uh, obviously Northern Ireland is running many years behind other places. You've mentioned there that there's a lot of examples from the Welsh and Scottish um, work and then also broadening that out to other European and, and I've been told of some good practice in, in North America and Canada as well. But in your uh, initial sort of look at those places, what what sort of things do you see happening um, without going and obviously there's a huge amount of detail, but what are the type of things that their task forces are doing and then that our task forces could start to replicate? I think ideally, yes, we would have a sort of an eclectic mix of all the best bits of all of them um, by, by their own admission and colleagues in all three task forces were extremely helpful and extremely candid with us and telling us what they thought uh, was working well and uh, perhaps not working so well in terms of their own. I mean, the, the English task force, which they reminded us is actually a UK-wide task force, so it produces some things that we can draw on here, uh, particularly in terms of uh, good practice. Uh, so rather than reinvent that, we, we can simply um, take that uh, and probably tailor it uh, for uh, more, more local use. The English one you might describe as the Rolls-Royce. It's the largest, uh, the best established, certainly the best funded, uh, multi-million pound budget, which I think we can only aspire to uh, here. Mm -hmm. But they were candid enough to say that their size also, almost makes them a victim of their own success. They can find it difficult from time to time to get the access to ministers that they would like, which in a smaller jurisdiction might, might come a little bit more easily. Uh, by contrast, Welsh and Scottish colleagues were saying they uh, really enjoyed the fact that as a smaller jurisdiction, they, they have exactly that. They're very close to their, their, their ministers. I think one of the best elements from Wales was the strength of the partnership with, with local government there. So in terms of their, their overall staffing, they've got right about 25 people in their task force. So about five of them would sit in central government and they're largely working on policy and strategy. The other 20-odd are not formally seconded or, or, or loaned, but they're actually based in local government, and they work very, very closely with, with local government there. And that allows them to do two things. I think, firstly, to do the joining up piece of existing programs and projects that sometimes can be repurposed uh, to, to um, add more value to this, but also in terms of the effectiveness of their direct uh, intervention on the ground because that is actually happening through on that uh, local government level. Um, Scotland very similar to that and, and the Scottish approach just very very sophisticated. Um, there, there's an interesting common element to all three uh, and it's a person uh, and his name is Phil Prentice and uh, he's someone the committee actually might, might uh, be, be interested in, in hearing from at some stage. Uh, he's from here originally, he's an Armagh man, but he's lived in Scotland for, for 30 years. Um, but he's uh, leading light in the Scottish task force uh, and an advisor to both the English and Welsh task forces. Uh, and he's a wonderfully open and candid uh, straight talker and was very, very helpful to us uh, during during that work. So I think if we had the the 
well, if we aspired to the, the sort of priority that's afforded to the English task force, that would be great. But I think if we could draw upon the, the sophistication of the Scottish approach, um, the really, really strong partnership with local government that's in Wales, those to me, I think, would be two very, very good building blocks for here. Okay. And look, finally, for myself, then, Chris, um, is there any thoughts been given to projects that are very close um, to what a high street task force could influence um, and, and not letting them sort of develop without giving them some sort of thought? And, and I'll give you an example. Um, in my constituency in St. Patrick, there, there is currently a, a large piece of land just off centre of the town centre that the Department of Communities and the local council are working to redevelop and they're building up designs and, and, and working quite well. But it's just, if that's actually happening and it's a real life project that could rejuvenate the, the uh, high street in Downpatrick, is there ways that the task force and the work that's happening from the executive office could sort of look in at, at a project that's happening in real time? rather than in six months or a year's time, a task force making certain decisions or directions or ideas, and then that one's kind of just sort of eight or 10 months in this project, and it could be a spend of you know tens of millions of pounds to redevelop, but it would be good if maybe even to be used as a prototype uh, to get the full uh, thrust of all those various agencies and examples, because here's a project that, that's ready to go. Sorry, Chair. I think your your question contains a, a very valid point indeed. Um, I was, I suppose, a little bit surprised at the extent to which all of the task forces have a very direct intervention role. But as I said themselves, uh, and this is your, your very point, once the concrete's on the ground, uh, it, it's too late really to start uh, influencing something. Uh, you need to get in there before that. They also, all three, were very strong on the need for the task force to, to challenge, uh, you know, blight or, or a lack of development where it's occurring. Uh, and they're all absolutely mustered on, you know, where, where they see somebody land banking, but not actually adding value uh, and actually holding up development because of that. They do tend to intervene and get in and try and, and, and trigger something. Now, just how quickly we can get the task force up and running uh, to the point where it's, it's influencing real projects now, I think remains to be seen. But one of the things that, that's, uh, well, it's both a challenge and an opportunity in that, because we're not setting up a new formal body, the, the task force won't, won't be a creature of statute, then we don't need the time that would be required uh, to, to do that. We can move a little bit more quickly. The challenge, but at the same time, the advantage then is that as an informal body, the task force has to work through others. So where it's spending money, it's council money or department money that it'll be, be spending or influencing the spending of. Uh, but again, that, that's quicker than you know bidding for budgets and waiting for the outcome of budget round uh, and then seeing, seeing what, what you have. Likewise, in terms of powers, it'll be, it'll be the council planning powers that need to be brought to bear on, on projects that, uh, if there are projects that are perhaps out of kilter with, with the vision for a task force. So again, it's not that the task force has a raft of new powers in its own hands, but on the other hand, we don't have to wait for that raft of new powers. The planning powers are, are there with councils and working through and in partnership with councils. I think the idea behind this is that yes, they do hit the ground running and they start to influence projects in real time. Okay. Well, look, I'll maybe come back to you again about that just to see if there's any connections possibly to something that, that like maybe another 
12 or 15 months before it's actually um, starting to deliver on the ground, but it would be good to get that expertise. Um, Chris, if you're happy, I'll pass now to the Deputy Chair to Doug for questioning. Chris, uh, I hope, hope you can hear me. Um, uh, fascinating, um, fascinating brief. Um, Chris, can I just maybe just carry on a little bit from what Colin just said? And I'm just trying to get a better understanding. One of the things you said in your brief was that you know that the high street in 20 years is going to be nothing like what the high street is um, today, or, or words similar to that. Um, could you sort of give us an example of that? Well, I mean, what do you actually mean in regards to that? What is England, Scotland, and Wales delivering um, in their high streets as part of their high street task force, which is making change that we would see as a physical change on our on our high streets and, and how they work? I think there's there's two factors that they would would point to. Um, one of them, and again, all, all three task forces said this, is the need for what in broad terms you would call anchor tenants. So if the anchor tenant is no longer, uh, you know, the, um, the, the, the big name uh, high street uh, retailer or, or the department store, then you need a different uh, anchor tenant. Now, that might be a different type of retail. Or it might be, uh, you know, a mixed development of, of housing and retail, or it might be public services. It might be a new public service hub somewhere, but something which starts to change and shape and drive the particular place or the ecosystem or the dynamics of of of, of what's there. You know, something that gives a citizen a reason to be on that high street. It might be because they live there, because they socialise there. Um, because they're accessing and consuming public services there. But it's a broader range of reasons than just, ah, that's where the big department store is. Uh, that, that's no longer going to be enough. I think the other thing that they would say is that, the, the you know, the days of the, and this sounds a bit pejorative, so forgive me, but the days of the sort of identikit um, high street are, are, are over, you know, where you walk down any market town anywhere in these islands and, and you see the same retail brands. Um, that's changing and an awful lot of that is going on online. The successful high streets that they're pointing to uh, are all bespoke. They all, they all look different. Uh, the local example that come up quite often, um, I'm not sure whose consistency this might be, but you know, I'm told Newton Ards is thriving. Well, not right now because everything's closed, but in the period between the restrictions, uh, Newton Ards was still doing very well, as were some other towns, uh, and some others uh, were, were not. Phil Prentice illustrates this with a, a very personal anecdote. He's lived in Glasgow for 30 years, but he still buys his clothes in the calls of Lisburn because he says there, there, is, there is a unique local offering there. There's something, uh, and perhaps I should say other, other high street retailers aren't available. There is something there that he feels he can't get online or he can't get anywhere else, be it a level of service or a, a particular brand that he, he wants to access. And he says that's where, where success is in retail. It has to be, and this is crude as this, something that you can't get online. It's very easy to say that, of course, it's very, very challenging to, to provide. But there are lots of examples of, of people doing it uh, successfully. So the plans will, will, will be different. Uh, you know, we will see different master plans, I think, for somewhere like Belfast, which, of course, will be unique and different anyway. Uh, you know, but Belfast will look different to Banbridge, and Banbridge will look different to Belcoo. Uh, and we need something that works uh, in each of those locations and other locations. And the work of the task force, I think, is to ensure that we've got the capacity and then provide the support, the wherewithal, and, and where that's not happening, to drive the change, uh, if that needs to be done. 
Can, can I then just ask, Chris, just on the back of that, uh, that's interesting. Uh, will there be a, a real drive then for town centre living or above shop living? Is that, I mean, clearly in Belfast, that, that's a thing, but it's less of a thing in Lurgan. It's less of a thing in Portadown. You know, is that a drive that with the task force will look at um, sort of increasing that? Yes, I think is, is the short answer to that. And that certainly has featured strongly in all of the task forces uh, to date. Now, just on that particular element, I think there's a sort of contrary COVID dimension, at, at least just right now, where, whether it's correct or not, I can't say that I've seen the evidence, but I've seen the anecdotal reporting of um, house prices uh, dropping in, in town and city centres because as a reaction to COVID, it's thought that there isn't quite so much demand for uh, city centre or, or town centre living. But one would hope that would be a transient phenomenon. And uh, again, we'll just see town and city centres just being envisaged differently, and much more so maybe than has been in the, the case in the last 20 years, very much being seen as places to live uh, and partake in all those other activities as well. Chris, thank you. Uh, and yeah, I, I guess I'm with you on that. And, and one very brief one, if I can, please. Um, I, I'm looking at your list of, of who you've engaged with so far, and, and I notice that you've engaged with Belfast City Council. I understand the reasons why you would have, but you don't seem to have engaged with, with the other council areas because everyone, and you'll know this, uh, is very bespoke. Uh, and it sort of leads me on to that, that issue because if you look at uh, Armagh, City, Banbridge and Craig Avonbury Council and, and the towns they have in there, Portadown and uh, uh, and Lurgan and Banbridge, but certainly the likes of Lurgan, uh, their high street uh, is plagued with division. You know, you could literally walk into Lurgan and say, look, this is the half of Lurgan high street that I will shop on. This is the half of Lurgan high street that I will not. Um, so is that division being looked at? And, and are you trying to link in into other agencies to see how can we can formulate that town centre sort of policy where we can mitigate against that division, such as in Lurgan? Absolutely. And I remember Lurgan fondly. I, I walked that very high street for, for two years when I worked there. Uh, and yes, I absolutely understand the, the phenomenon you're referring to. Uh, yes, in, in terms of uh, engagement, uh, initially it was through NILGA uh, and directly with Belfast City Council who approached us. Going forward, uh, we need to find the right way to uh, get the full range of, of council involvement there. So we've had some initial conversations with, with colleagues in, in, in Solus. Uh, whether that's through uh, Solus as the umbrella organisation along with NILGA uh, or individual councils, I think will be for ministers to decide. But they, they're absolutely uh, all the view that we, we need a, a great deal of, of council involvement there. I think your your description of, of Lurgan as well, I think, underlines the, the need for the, the lead on this to be local and in terms of shaping the actual interventions or, or master plans. You're absolutely right. I think getting the answer right for somewhere like Lurgan requires the sort of insight and, and knowledge that civic leadership there would have. People who are familiar with, with uh, that, that community and the challenges that it faces and who will have enough knowledge and, and nice to develop a solution for that that would work in Lurgan. I don't think it's something that uh, officials sitting at a desk at Stormont are, are likely to get right. It needs that sort of local input. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Chair. Okay, thank you, Doug. Um, could I ask next then for Martina, please? Martina Anderson. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Chair, and thank you, Chris, uh, for that information. And 
Chris, I think we all concur. Look, there's no quick fixes here. And we've all been witnessing the decline of our high streets and we need to protect uh, particularly our, our small businesses and family-owned businesses who are at the heart of all of our communities. And I'm very mindful of the sterling work at Retail NI and Hospitality Ulster and the Chamber and NILGA and all those organisations do uh, overarchingly for all the constituencies. But I want to say that I am really concerned that the kind of thinking that went into the establishment of a reference group that ended up with, and it's no um, casting no dispersions in the work of any of these groups or the work that was done, other than in the context if we're seriously going to be tackling regional inequalities and regional disparities. And we end up with a reference group where retail NI based in Belfast, Hospitality Ulster based in Belfast, the Chamber of Commerce based in Belfast, Nilga based in Belfast, and maybe it's little wonder that the council that was engaged with was Belfast Council. And whatever about um, what happened there and why that came about, perceptions um, can become realities for people. And therefore, when you're talking, and I was listening to you about the expansion uh, as we move forward from the reference group into the task force membership, and I was glad to hear you talk about the founding community sector, cultural arts. Um, I, I know, for instance, community arts, we have a fantastic organization in Derry and Skag, Studio 2, and everyone could say the same, uh, local government, tourism. But I am concerned, and it's not the first time, Chair, I've raised this when we were talking initially about this task force. And I asked for consideration to be given to the Northwest. We have a city centre initiative in Derry, fantastic organisation. And while Streetail and I and others, of course, absolutely, that they will do a sterling bit of work uh, trying to represent all. The differences that Doug had talked about, the uniqueness in different areas, and I know you can't have everyone in all the constituency and for every, for, for every uh, city, but you do have overarching views as to where regional disparity needs to be attacked, needs to be addressed. And therefore, I think whilst it's a good job done, but must do better with the establishment of the membership and chair, given that we raised it before in this committee, before the reference group was established, I have to say I'm concerned that perhaps the views of the members on this group of our committee were ignored when the reference group was established. Thanks, Martina. And I absolutely understand the, the, the point that you're making. Uh, you'll, you'll forgive me if I make the obvious caveat that decisions and membership are a matter for ministers, but absolutely understand the, the, the point that you're making. I absolutely understand the importance of avoiding any perception that, that this is a Belfast-dominated enterprise or that it's only going to focus on, on Belfast for, for, I think, two very important reasons. One is, is the reason that you've given, uh, which is that we, we need to deliver in terms of this task force for every city and town and village centre in, in Northern Ireland, and they're all different and, and they all have different needs. But the other reason as well is there, you know, we've talked about good practice in other jurisdictions. We've talked about good practice internationally. There's also some good practice here, and you've mentioned some of it in, in, in the Northwest. 
So there's good practice locally, uh, and we need to get out and find that, uh, and we need to bring that into the task force. So the, the assurance that, I, that I'll give you to whatever extent I'm involved in it is that the, the doors of the task force and certainly the doors of, of the department are, are open. Uh, not only are we willing, I would look forward to engaging with stakeholders uh, who will have something to offer uh, on this in terms of a better insight into the needs of the communities that they serve uh, and examples of good practice that uh, we can replicate elsewhere. Uh, so, you know, more than happy to try and make up for the deficit uh, on that. Uh, happy to be guided by you as to uh, which doors we should knock uh, or email accounts we should access. Um, Chris, I appreciate uh, that response, but you'll also appreciate in, in my role as a, a Derry MLA, and I will stand up for Derry in every opportunity, as every other MLA will stand up for their own constituency. Um, I don't want them just engaged with as a stakeholder. I would like them around the table in the shaping of the decisions, and that's an ask that you will probably get for many of the constituencies. So I appreciate that what you said, that you'll take that into account and hopefully when the membership of the task force uh, is formulated and, and decided upon finally, that that can be taken into account. Chris, can I ask you, because I don't know if you have touched upon this, if you've looked at this, or you can uh, influence it, because the, the whole issue of the voucher scheme, and it was a fanfare of an announcement, and I know it was announced before the restrictions and all of that. But I think due to a lack of pre preparedness and planning from the Department of Economy that we've had to hand back or they had to hand back 90 million for a failed scheme. Now, we know the town centres aren't open. We know the people they fit for. But I do think with a little bit of imagination, we could have found a way of ensuring that we were able to. We all go online. Many of them now, the stores are online. We could have been trying to see how we could access it online. So is the task force, even in this reference group, is that work done or will there be some kind of engagement with the Department for Economy on this and have, for instance, a task force or others been able to submit uh, alternative proposals and schemes to the department for for the economy so that they can go to the Department of Finance uh, and show how this money can be spent. Our retail, our, our shops, our local businesses, our small businesses, that was revenue and funding that they could be doing with. And the fact that we had a hand back through maybe lack of imagination or someone not having the foresight to look down the road ahead, see that the shops were to be all closed, uh, all understandably uh, as to why that is the case, uh, but showing that they could develop a scheme so that we could spend that still uh, because I'm, I'm concerned that it could be lost now. The opportunity that we had could be lost for our, for our city centres. I, unfortunately, I can't comment on that particular scheme simply because I, I wasn't involved in it. Um, but your, your, your broader question, the, the, the short answer is no, that that, that isn't something that uh, the reference group uh, particularly focused on. And that's not to say that the reference group uh, didn't take a strong interest in, in COVID recovery or indeed you might term it COVID survival. Uh, they did. Uh, and the reference group's very clear view was that that's actually the first and, and top priority. Now, ministers have indicated that, they're, that they recognise that, they, they agree with that, but that they're minded for that particular strand of the work to be taken forward by the existing COVID-19 task force. Uh, and I think the main reason for that is 
the very one that you've, you've given, that, that really needs to start right now. It can't even wait for a, a high streets task force uh, to be established. So it's colleagues on the other side of the department um, under Jenny's leadership as, as Hawks uh, who will be considering those uh, particular issues. Now, I know that the members of the reference group, uh, and I'm sure the High Streets Task Force uh, proper in due course, had and will continue to have a very strong interest in that, and I know they will want to be involved. It's not something that they're just going to wash their hands off and say they no longer have an interest. They, they, they clearly do. So they'll want to work very closely with, with the COVID-19 Task Force in trying to find answers to, to that challenging question. Um, you know, what's the best way to use the resources and where's the most immediate need? Chair, perhaps we could write to the Committee um, of the Economy just to find out have they been exploring with the Department other potential schemes because in terms of this money going into our high streets, uh, that should have been something that anyone with a little bit of time and foresight would have been able to come up with a scheme that would have delivered that. So it would be good for us to get more information on that. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Okay, certainly. So we'll take that note to ask that question. And Chris did reference there the fact that um, Jenny Piper's got the task force and it gives us a almost Blue Peter moment because uh, she's coming up next and we'll be able to get uh, questions on that. Um, Trevor Lunn, I see you're there for uh, some questions, please, if you'd like to ask them. If Trevor is there, I don't see him on any of the, the screens at the bottom there. So maybe currently in his kitchen making a cup of tea or, or, or the lights are on a phone call, but maybe if he will give him another second or two in case he hears us and can switch on his microphone and his... Uh, he endured me for years in the Education Committee chair. He's maybe uh, had second thoughts. <laughs> Two miles down the road running away at this stage, maybe then, uh, Chris. <laughs> so, look, we, we'll, we'll have to, to move on because... Uh, I don't... Can you hear me now? Ah, excellent. There we go, Trevor. We'll give you a good bit of time to, to be able to come on board with your questions. And I think he's hit the exit button and has dropped him. <laughs> Self off blank now, so um, look, I'm sure he can write to you and ask you uh, very pertinent questions there, uh, Chris. Yeah, if if yeah. that needs to, uh, <laughs> no, he's back with us again. Okay, one final go, Trevor. If you want to ask your question, fire on. Can you hear me? You can. We can indeed. Yes. Well, here we can see you. Hallelujah. Um, Chris, I was going to ask you to give us an example of a, a successful high street in Northern Ireland, but you very helpfully did. You reminded me about the Newton Arts, which really is quite a success story. Uh, I was there before the lockdown for an afternoon, and it, it's buzzing. It's great. So there might be room for a, a case study there, at least. Um, Lisburn Chamber of Commerce has worked at this for years, and they recently had a, an expert across from England, I believe, who gave us all a, a very inspirational talk. And, but his main theme was that uh, really talking about food and drink, uh, emphasis, and uh, even an economy. He was, he was very hot on this. And he, he examined the town centre and actually did a, a, gave a lot of praise to a, a small scheme just off the Bow Street, which uh, within a few weeks actually closed. But that was unfortunate. 
It wasn't a bad example. It just it just was hit at the wrong time. So as even the economy translates to town centre living, which is already been mentioned, also translates into licensing laws, uh, the ability of pubs to open to operate in a sort of continental way when we get continental weather, and particularly to, to be able to spill onto the pavement, which currently they can only do, I think, in certain towns or cities in Northern Ireland, which don't include the likes of Lisburn. So would, would the task force be taken into account those various factors? Uh, yes, thanks, Trevor. Uh, the short answer is, I think, yes to, to all of those. Uh, we were hearing the same things. Uh, on your your first point, yes, I mentioned Yutnars and Kisanoi, uh, lots of other MLAs. I'm sure there are other successful examples uh, across Northern Ireland. But we need to get under the skin of that. We need to find out um, why is it that, that, that Yutnars uh, and other successful examples are successful and working so well, and why is it that some other towns are, are not working so well? What's the difference? But I think the answer is likely to lie in, as you say, that sort of multi-dimensional um, uh, addressing of, of, of needs and, and specification of uh, uh, a way forward. And again, I think one of the key messages that we heard was don't just think of this as being about a particular sector or even groups of sectors. Success comes from having a very strong sense of place or, or identity. It's about how the whole of a town centre or high street. I don't actually like the terminology high streets task force. It tends to make you think, or tends to make me think at least, uh, mainly of retail. Uh, and it's broader than that in terms of sectors and activities involved. Uh, and indeed, geographically, it is about town centres uh, and, and community centres and about how they function uh, throughout the day and the evening, as, as you say, and, and, and all of the, the dimensions. And that, that is the key. It's getting something in the centre that gives the citizen the reason to be there and to stay there. So it's no longer a case that you would simply go in uh, or that we could build a city centre economy through someone just going in to access a department store and then leaving again. There has to be a reason for the citizen to want to invest his or her time and money in coming into a city or town centre and staying there and consuming a range of services, retail, uh, residential perhaps because they live there, retail because their immediate needs are being met because they live there, or if they've come in because, as you say, they're perhaps uh, accessing an evening economy, uh, food and drink, uh, art and leisure, just a much more mixed economy than our vision has, has been in the past. And, you know, it, it was illustrated very starkly by, by some of the stakeholders. That sort of diverse, multidimensional economy maximizes your chances of success. And by contrast, if you have a monoculture that depends purely on one sector, you're increasing your risk of failure. Yes. Yes, indeed. I would give you one other example of a thriving high street, because I'll be, I'll be eating alive if I don't give you it. It's Hillsborough. This is part of Lisburn. Hillsborough Main Street and the Hillsborough area. Now, perhaps it's due to the historic Royal Palace effect and the fact that there's three or four excellent restaurants and a couple of pubs. And it's a really quirky, nice, unusual. I think you mentioned this. It doesn't, they're not, they don't have to be all the same. And Hillsborough has some really, really pleasant, small, unusual type of shops. Uh, so there's different ways to go about it. But it's, I like what you're saying, but I have heard a lot of it before, going right back to when I was Chamber President in Lilburn, which wasn't yesterday, I can tell you. Uh, and various attempts have been made to do this. This one sounds 
a bit more organized, but but more uh, perhaps with with resources to to apply to the problem because certainly so something needs to be done. Well, thanks for your presentation. Thank you. Okay, thanks very much for that, Trevor and Chris. And then end of the the questions that members are indicating they want to ask. Can I uh, thank you for coming along today? Can I thank you for one of the been one of the first in the last number of weeks to actually fit right into your allocated time. We're just striking at three o'clock, which means that we're on time this afternoon. Um, we appreciate getting the, the update on it. I think we all, in every constituency, um, are hearing quite regularly the problems that retail and other uh, high street people that are interested in the high street are hearing about what the problems are. And I think that's why we're so interested in the work of this uh, task force because we can all see how there can be tangible uh, help and assistance from it um, and, and from that pooling of resources uh, and thoughts. So can I thank you for your attendance here today? Um, mem members, if I could maybe just on the back of uh, what we've heard there, there was a suggestion um, from uh, Martina that we write to the, um, to the Department for the Economy uh, and speak to them about initiatives that may have been there. And also maybe just on the back of uh, Martina's contribution, can I suggest as well that we maybe write uh, to the executive and just suggest that there is uh, consideration given the regional balance uh, for the inclusion uh, of key stakeholders as part of uh, the, the process of investigating that. And then something uh, as well, maybe that if we could uh, Michael, maybe drop into that, that just that we do recognise maybe, and, and I'm picking this up for members uh, to guide me, but that this is an urgent matter. This isn't something that can be, let's have a, a long process to examine uh, what issues are. Let's think, you know, there, there has to be short, medium and long-term uh, goals and strategies, but there needs to be an emphasis on delivering the short term very quickly because many businesses are, are tinkering right on the end and they do need that support. So uh, if this is, is an initiative that can help, uh, it would certainly be, be useful. So, members, if you're agreeable to that, uh, then what we can do is we can just do a quick juggle round and then uh, bring Jenny Piper up into the spotlight, uh, along with Andrew McCormick and Mark Brown as well. Um, we're there. Um, can I write, record apologies for Christopher? Um, once he's back, he's still not entirely well. And apologies, I was late. I had IP problems getting in here. So um, just just for the record, particularly for Christopher, I'm not so worried about myself. But oh, well, I, I would be very worried about about you there, Trevor. It's good. It's good to have you on board, and I'm glad you got sorted out with the the technical problems. We we had sort of tentatively reco recorded a. Uh, uh, sort of apologies for Christopher and I, I'm sure he's sitting somewhere listening into the committee and we will offer him uh, our best wishes uh, uh, I think some of that stuff but there you go <laughs> <laughs> AP with bated breath um, so I, I know I can see that Mark, Andrew and Jenny are up into the spotlight. They haven't populated the screen, so I can't actually see, but I hope that you're there. Maybe, Jenny, if you said hello, it might bring you up into the um, up onto the screen for me just to check that you're there. Uh, hello, Chair. Uh, I'm here. I can see you. I can't see myself, but I can see you and the members. 
that's brilliant. That's brought you up there for us now so that we can actually see you. That's great. I know that we spoke before, but I think this is the first that we're actually, uh, I'm actually seeing you. So you're very welcome uh, today to the committee. Um, you have taken up the role just before Christmas as the interim head of the civil service and thus the permanent secretary at the executive office. Uh, I know that previously we will have uh, wished you well. Uh, in that task, no small task at the best of times, uh, but obviously in these current times, very, very difficult uh, in terms of health, uh, very difficult time for our communities, uh, and very difficult time for business and retail. So there's quite a lot of work uh, that you are having to undertake, uh, and we certainly appreciate all that's being done. Um, I suppose maybe uh, just the, the way we normally operate with these things, as I'm sure you're aware, uh, Jenny, as well, maybe pass over yourself to give us a, a few minutes of an introduction to yourself and the work and the priorities that you're doing, and then we can open it out to members then for some questioning. And if you're happy enough with that, I'll pass over to yourself. Okay, Chair, thank you. Thank you very much, and thanks uh, for the invitation to meet with the committee today and also for your good wishes. It's very much uh, appreciated. Um, I am grateful for the opportunity a fairly early opportunity um, to, uh, to to talk to you. I think it's it's uh, day sixty five. Not not that I'm counting or anything, um, but it uh, it still feels uh, like very uh, very early on in my appointment. So I'm very glad to have uh, Dr. McCormick and Dr. Brown uh, along today. And I know the committee is very familiar uh, with with both of them, and uh, I suspect I may lean on them for. Uh, a lot of the uh, the detail, but as as you suggested, Chair, um, I, I'll, I'll try and outline to the the committee um, what I understand my key priorities to be over the period that um, I'm going to be in post. Uh, as you know, I was appointed by First and Deputy First Minister on the first of December for a period of eight months. Um, I know some members of the committee. I've appeared in front of them um, in the past. Um, I was a career civil servant for many years, but since 2013, um, I, I left the civil service and was chief executive of the utility regulator. Uh, but my appointment came um, at, at an ongoing uh, time of challenge for the executive, continuing to manage the response to the pandemic, and that continues to be um, the focus for, for very many of us. Um, in addition, just before Christmas, we were coming up to the end of the EU transition period, um, which in normal times um, and, and without, be, without a pandemic was, was going to be a huge administrative challenge and, and continues uh, to raise challenging issues for all of us uh, today. Um, and both those two issues remain inescapable pressures for ministers and civil servants for, for obvious reasons. Um, my role, really, I suppose, as interim hawks has got a number of interconnected strands. Um, firstly, uh, leading the overall Northern Ireland civil service uh, and ensuring continuing and coherent support for executive ministers at, at uh, what continues to be a challenging time. Um, in addition, as you've mentioned, I'm permanent secretary of the executive office and uh, I lead what may be a small department but one which this committee knows only too well has some of the biggest and most sensitive uh, challenges to manage. 
I mentioned uh, COVID and EU exit, but as you know, TEO is deeply involved in victims' issues and in important work involved in uh, building better relationships between communities and indeed improving the quality of life within those communities. And you've just, uh, I think, had a session with uh, Chris Stewart talking about the important work of the, the High Street Task Force. Uh, and again, that falls uh, as a critical piece of the uh, building communities work uh, of TEO. But of course, TEO also operates directly on the political interface, not just with the executive, but also with the UK and the Irish governments. And all of this uh, is creating challenges at a time of continuing resource pressures, including those imposed by the, the pandemic. This committee will, will know that the finance minister's recently announced budget uh, indicated an overall 24.3% budget increase between 2021 and 21-22. Um, but the reality for the executive office is that uh, we have not received any additional funding for business as usual activities. And the increase that's there for the year 21-22 is for particular things such as uh, victims payments, HIA, EU match funding and EU exit, and all of those are, are ring-fenced. So essentially for TEO, as with other departments, uh, we're looking at uh, an outcome next year, which is essentially a flat cash settlement. Um, and that in reality, as I know this committee understands, means uh, a reduction on our finances once increased uh, costs and demands on services are taken into account. So the budget settlement does mean it's going to be a challenging period across uh, the civil service and, and indeed so for, for this department. Um, I know the committee is going to be actively involved in the budget consultation process and we welcome your constructive engagement because you do understand the range of work and the range of challenges that we face. Um, and I know um, Dr. Brown, uh, who's with me today, will be happy to pick up on any specific um, budget, budget questions. But the third leg, I suppose, to my, my role as interim hawks is that I am formally the secretary to the executive committee. And I do see one of my key responsibilities as ensuring that the executive continues to function as effectively and efficiently as it can, as it works through the challenges of the pandemic. Um, part of the, the role is also to try and minimize any admin uh, barriers that might be put in its way as it continues to work with a, an unprecedentedly high level of intensity and on a virtual basis. And it is far from ideal, um, as you know only too well from a committee perspective, um, Starleaf or Zoom or um, one of the other platforms are far from ideal. And uh, that problem I think is exacerbated for the executive, which um, I think would work um, much better as many of us would if we were able to be around a table together. So those continue to be challenges. But I want to pick up specifically on a couple of things, um, including the executive COVID task force, which I know you'll be interested in. Um, that was one of the key tasks that First and Deputy asked me to take on uh, to chair the newly established uh, ECT. And I suppose really it was just a reflection of the extent uh, and the scale of the, the pandemic and its enduring uh, impacts which continued to surpass the uh, initial assessments back in March, April, May last year. And it really is a, a response which recognises the need for a strategic and collaborative plan to tackle the, the pandemic. 
So the aim really of the, the COVID task force is to try and provide a bit of a step change in the executive res response through coordinating a more integrated program of work, both of response to the pandemic, which of course is being led as it should be by the Department of Health, but also in relation to recovery planning. Um, and as chair, I convene the Strategic Oversight Board that meets uh, regularly. In fact, um, it's meeting this afternoon, and when I finish with the committee, I, I will be joining uh, that Strategic Oversight Board to pick up on, on progress. Um, we have structured our work around four uh, work streams. The first uh, relates to uh, the ongoing management of the pandemic, That's and that work stream is, is around protection. It's led by the Department of Health. But then we're looking um, at adherence and behavioural uh, behavioral issues related to the restrictions. We're looking at strategic communications, and I can say a bit more about each of these work streams in due course. Um, but also critically, as I mentioned, working on recovery, when that starts, what it looks like, what it needs to involve. And work under each of those strands is being led by, uh, by permanent secretaries from health, economy, communities and justice, as well as the executive information service, and they all sit on the oversight board. So our priorities for the next four to eight weeks really are around developing a pathway to recovery, which will essentially act as a, as a roadmap out of the current restrictions. Looking at ways of increasing adherence to the public health guidance and regulations, and enhancing the executive strategic communications capacity. So I'm happy in questions to pick up on, on any of those strands, because uh, I suspect that's an area where I know you have a great interest and I, I imagine committee colleagues um, do likewise. But just in terms of other big challenges, um, like any major organisation, the, the Northern Ireland Civil Service is, is facing significant challenges, uh, not just in responding to the pandemic, but also in terms of improving and the scope and the responsiveness of, of its services to a wide range of customers uh, against a, a challenging financial uh, constraint background. And we have to work through challenging regulations, uh, sorry, challenging recommendations coming out of the RHI inquiry and also the Northern Ireland Audit Office report on capability and capacity in the, in the civil service. And those reports do highlight the scale and challenge of the transformation that needs to that needs to take place. So, as interim head and and with the support of the civil service board, um, we do want to continue to develop that program of reform and transformation to ensure that the civil service has the confidence and trust of a range of stakeholders and most importantly the the wider community in Northern Ireland. And the key to this, uh, we believe, will be the development of the new strategic outcomes-based programme for government. And that programme is designed to form the basis for the executive to partner with civic society, respond to people's needs uh, and community needs to help build a more inclusive society with outcomes related to both individual and collective well-being. And I know that um, the programme for government uh, consultation document uh, has been shared with the committee, and I'm sure members will want to fully uh, engage uh, with that consultation, and we really do value your involvement. 
And equally important and, and running in parallel with, um, with those other priorities will be the continued work on the national and international dimension of the work of the Northern Ireland Executive, which I would hope to sustain and develop both with colleagues uh, in the UK government, uh, with the devolved administrations in Scotland and in Wales, and with the Irish government. Um, and those relationships are really critical, I think, uh, and have been important throughout the COVID pandemic. Uh, but I believe they will also be very important as we start to map that pathway to recovery. So I know you've also received briefings recently on EU exit issues, and I don't think I need to go over that ground. But uh, needless to say, uh, events following the end of the transition period have been uh, very difficult, and we're continuing to manage uh, the complexities associated with the Trade Development Agreement and implementing the protocol. So I suppose, Chair, the final the final priority for me really is um, to uh, do myself out of a job um, and to develop uh, help to develop the new competition for a permanent head of the uh, civil service. Now that work is uh, underway. It's being led by uh, Nick's HR, working with me, with SIB colleagues, and with the civil service commissioners. Um, and and that, uh, from a personal priority perspective. Um, is is important to progress so that we have a competition and and we have a uh, an appointable uh, candidate um, in time for a smooth handover before my period of appointment comes to an end uh, in the summer. So I hope, Chair, that um, that overview is helpful to the committee in understanding um, the role and the priorities as as I have understood them and where my focus is going to be over the next few months. Um, I'm happy to take questions from members on, on anything I've covered and, and on other TU issues. As I say, I may draw on uh, my top team, Andrew and Mark, uh, as, as uh, depending on the questions, but I'm at your disposal. Okay, thank you very much for that, Jenny. A quiet week at the office then with that uh, resume of all the, the various strands and various areas of work that are taking place. and. Um, I do recognise how it does, um, I suppose, illustrate for us the sort of strangeness that there can be because the department does have a relatively small headcount and it does have a relatively small budget at times looking at the start of the year. But actually, whenever you take in the, the full breadth of strands that, that, of the work that's involved and the engagement at the cross departmental and cross-executive work, uh, it does highlight the important role of having a department in the middle that is drawing all of that together. Uh, and I suppose it, it, it highlights for us the importance of this committee uh, to be able to scrutinise the work uh, that takes place both within the department, but then at times reaching out across the other departments. Um, I wanted to begin maybe just by asking a question to get from yourself, your perspective on one of the bigger issues in terms of finance regarding uh, the victim's pension. I mean, this has been rattling on for, for quite a period of time. Um, you know, the, we, we need to start delivering for people on the ground. We all know the, the stories that there are, that there are people that are passing away and they're not getting, um, you know, conclusions um, to, you know, some closure to their uh, stories, to their involvement that was um, quite significant and, and thrust upon them. Um, and there is this sort of 
bartering of whether it be London that pays or Belfast that plays. And that's important for us and it's important for you uh, to be part of that uh, and have that as a part of the conversation. But for them on the ground, that really is irrelevant. They just yeah. want the whole uh, scenario done and dusted and the, 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 the payments and, and other elements uh, concluded. So could you give us a flavour as Head of the Civil Service and Permanent Secretary for the Department, what your involvement in that process has been and what your uh, expectation is of things rolling out in the weeks ahead? Well, look, you're, you're right to identify it, uh, obviously, as a, as a difficult issue. And um, you're, you're aware that um, while the draft budget has, has set aside funding for um, TEU for implementation costs mm -hmm. in relation to the victims' payment schemes, it doesn't provide any funding for the actual for the actual payments. Um, now the position really is uh, the executive is committed to the delivery of the scheme, but executive ministers have been very clear, um, and and it is for executive ministers that British the shortfall there I think is is of the order of twenty two million. So um, I am. Uh, I meet with my counterpart in the Northern Ireland office uh, frequently. Uh, was speaking to her this morning. Uh, it remains an item on our agenda, um, and we continue to press that case. Um, Mark may have more detailed on uh, uh, updates than me, but this is a position really where ex the executive ministers have made it clear that it is for the British government. We are pressing the case because we recognise on the ground, we see it in terms of the delivery of some of our other programmes and in terms of the liaison and the contacts that we have with stakeholders and with those involved. Um, it's it, it does sound like past the parcel. I understand that. And that is very suboptimal from our perspective. So Mark may want to pick up in terms of some of the direct dialogue that he has he has had on this in, in recent weeks. I think I think uh, just just to add to what Jenny has has said, um, there there is a request out for a meeting with the Secretary of State, which she has agreed to in principle, but that has yet to be uh, actually actually uh, arranged. But I think the important thing and the important point to emphasise is that while there's still uh, uh, that discussion going on about about securing the full funding, all the arrangements that are necessary to deliver the scheme are proceeding. So I chair an oversight board and I work with the Department of Justice very closely uh, on this, uh, and we're putting the, all the all the necessary Necessary arrangements in place, including the, the the victims' payments board, all the arrangements for assessment, for evidence gathering, uh, for the IT system. All of that is being put in place, and there's engagement with victims' groups about the application process to make sure that it meets their needs. And the budget, of course, did also include two and a half million for this year for those preparations to continue. It has also included six point seven million for next year to ensure that, that the arrangements will continue and to, to seek to, to meet the uh, the time frame that was set out by the Justice Minister for opening in March. So I think the reassurance to victims is all of those preparations are going ahead uh, and all the arrangements are being put in place. And it's really in the political sphere that the, uh, the funding issue has to be sorted out. Chair, I, I can't hear you, I'm afraid, Chair. Is it just me? Uh, I, yes, that's uh, it's something I'm very good at doing, which is talking and not unmuting. But yeah, so but look, I was saying that that uh, I do think that a number of the a significant number of the roads are leading 
to the fact that the, the Secretary of State is the person that, that needs to make the next move here. I think the executive have said that they want to meet. I think what we're hearing from Mark quite clearly there is that the infrastructure is in place, but it needs the final piece of the jigsaw put. I think you're making the case to your counterpart in the Northern Ireland office. So I think, again, what we need is we need the Secretary of State to you know, open their ears, listen to what people are saying, and then respond and have that meeting. And at least it will allow people to move forward because there's little point in us getting to the 1st of April and having all the infrastructure in place and then no money because that's not going to allow anything to be delivered either. So, um, you know, we'll certainly keep amplifying that that noise that the Secretary of State needs to, to meet with the executive ministers to be able to, to move this forward. Um, if I could ask a question about... You've made reference to the uh, COVID recovery uh, task force, and we have just had the presentation from Chris about the High Street task force. And obviously, the High Street was having significant difficulties before COVID. COVID has uh, accelerated and exasperated the the problems that are there. And um, he made reference to the fact that the first strand uh, of that work, which um, is to sort of uh, try and uh, and deal with the COVID impacts on the high street would be left to the task force that you're dealing with, uh, and you had reference to that as well. But could you give us a bit more flavour as to what type of initiatives that the, the um, that the public might and and the high street retailers and others may be looking for from that task force that you're heading up? Okay, so so the the. The, the, the COVID task force is taking an overarching view involving all of the departments. We are, it, it's not, the task force is not a whole new um, machinery. It's not a whole new branch being set up in the centre. It's very much there to join up initiatives that are taking place in other departments um, and try and make sure that um, we, you know, left hand and right hand knows what's happening, that we don't get into our silos of just focusing on uh, an economic recovery when there are serious uh, challenging issues uh, in terms of community recovery or in terms of recovery of the health service. The purpose of the task force is to try and um, join up the dots and look for gaps. Um, where are there gaps in provision? So we are not at the stage of developing specific initiatives. We're very much still in the space of looking, reflecting on what has happened over the past nine months, 12 months. Um, what have we learned in terms of what damage or limitations the restrictions have placed on people, on communities and on businesses? And what's it going to take in order to build a recovery. The shape of the high street has fundamentally changed, not just because of uh, the pandemic, but because of bigger market change changes that have taken place. And I'm thinking here of um, Debenhams uh, and, and the loss of, of you know, very many of those other uh, retail outlets that you know, are, are characteristic of many of the, the high streets, the Dorothy Perkins, the Burtons uh, and so on those businesses um are not going to come back uh, we we would understand um on a on an actual basis they will be there as virtual shops now so the whole dynamic of what might be there in the high street i think we need to look at again and it does provide opportunities i think for different retail offerings to come forward so one of the things we're trying to do in in the recovery aspect of the the task force 
is to look at what the timeline is likely to be for recovery. We know when the restrictions run to at the moment in terms of the 5th of March. We know the deadlines uh, and the targets in terms of the reopening of schools. So what does a pathway to recovery look for? We won't suddenly see a return um, of, of everything, but we would hope we would see um, restaurants um, and bars and coffee shops and so on beginning to open up. Those those sorts of establishments are going to be critical to draw footfall to bring people back into the onto the high streets and into the city centre. So what might that look like, assuming that things start to open up again after March? Nobody's got a crystal ball at this stage. We still travel in hope because the indicators are, are, are positive in terms of the rollout of the vaccination and in terms of the effectiveness in treating uh, in addressing the vaccine. So the work that has begun is led by um, Mike Brennan in the Department for the Economy and Tracy Mahard for, from Communities working together to look at what bigger economic recovery would look like, including Going, getting back to promoting Northern Ireland as a good place to do business and to invest alongside um, what needs to happen on the ground in communities. And that's where the work of the High Street Task Force will also come in. It, it has its own um, distinctive remit. Um, it's, it's, um, I suppose its scope has been um, started before the COVID task force has come on board. So we will look to find it a place as we start to map this pathway to recovery. We are aiming to get a paper to uh, the executive within the next couple of weeks. And obviously, once that happens, that can be that can be shared with um, with the committee. But essentially, it's about trying to project forward in the short term and in the medium term, the various elements that need to take place across all of the departments. Um, there are some things that are already, um, I suppose, work is underway. We know what um, the key elements of a new energy strategy might be like. We, we know from the Department of Agriculture their levels of ambition in terms of climate change and green growth. Um, we know um, what the priorities are uh, from the Department of Education uh, in terms of uh, children and young people. And so, so it goes on for all of the departments. We also then need to look at the, the, the programme for government and how some of those outcomes in the programme for government get joined up as part of the recovery. So I know that all sounds, um, it's good civil service stuff, but the task force isn't at the point of, it's not going to be, the task force itself isn't going to be delivering. The task force is going to try and pull together in a coherent way, all those various elements that Northern Ireland is going to need in order to, recovery, to, to recover. And that will include really big challenges in terms of health service recovery. And we know some of the, the big issues that that, uh, that department is facing. So the civil service has, the departments have reshaped themselves, reprioritized people and service. Initiatives and, and uh, then the forward look aligned to the program for government and to some of those other priority areas that are going to need uh, going to need a focus like the high street task force so it's a it, it's looking at a glide path exit from the pandemic and then a pathway forward and that's that's being worked on 
this afternoon. I would love to be able to dip into the meeting uh, and yep. find out how where they are and be able to share that with you. But hopefully within the next couple of weeks, Chair, that's something that yep. we could uh, will be able to, to share with you in a bit more detail. Okay, look, I, I, I appreciate that that response, and I know you made a, a certain acknowledgement to it there, and I absolutely don't mean this as an insult, so please don't don't take it as such, but, you know, somebody that is on their knees in the high street could have listened to that answer and went, but how does that help me? I don't know what you've said loads there, but I don't actually know what it means, and, and I suppose something that I think maybe the committee has a role in is trying to decode what is we're aligning the program for governments, we're looking at long-term strategies, we're looking at redevelopments. You know, the, the, the issue for a lot of specifically retail on the high street is that they don't know whether next week or next month they're going to be able to open their doors again. So there is, a, a, I suppose, an importance that this takes place quickly. And you know, I'm just a little, just just a little bit concerned, but I, I'm holding a reservation for another month or so in terms of the high street task force. Seems like something that a lot of other agencies outside can come in and get involved in and work with. But it seems to be saying, well, no, we kind of need to pause a little bit and pass it over to a COVID task force, and and then if the COVID task force is saying that we need to look at long term and medium term, and, you know, so it's it's just about making sure that there's a bit of action and delivery on the ground as quickly as possible, because that's what that's how businesses see they see a wee bit of action, then they get a bit of comfort. So um, I say I don't mean that as harsh maybe as it sounds, but uh, I just wanted to, to say that. Yeah, well, look, I I I understand that, and um, but there isn't. You know, we, we, we do know where we are in terms of the current restrictions. We know that those restrictions are in place to the 5th of March. Now, it is possible the executive might might decide to lift those restrictions sooner. But, you know, I think we are fairly, I think we are pretty clear. And we're having dialogue with um, the like of Colin Neal, um, you know, from um, Ulster pubs and, and restaurants. And there's a real concern from some players out there that, they actually would rather wait until things are very clear and we're absolutely certain that we're not going to go back into restrictions again before they get back out, bring their bring their staff back, start ordering stock, start opening up again if there's a risk of them closing down again. So it's a really, if I'm sounding vague, it's because we're trying to balance um, expectations out there. There's no point in telling people that there'll be lots of good stuff coming down the road, but it might be March and it might be April, but it might be May or June. Do, yeah. do you know what I mean? So yeah. we're we're trying to proceed by by looking at how much we can join up, look where there are gaps, and try and see well how do we best get going and use the like of the High Street Task Force quickly and effectively once we know we can. There's not a lot of point in managing people's or raising people's expectations now. We saw what happened in terms of the voucher scheme. Yeah. Um, you know, expectations up here only to not be able to deliver. So um, this is very much about trying to make sure that departments are 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 acting together and aren't just looking and thinking, well, okay, we plow ahead with our bit. And never mind what's going on in terms of communities or never mind what's going on in the education sector. This is really trying to look about how we get a joined up recovery that can build a bit of momentum. And um, there is there's work being done at national level as well in terms of, of wider recovery. And um, I think we're very much looking to say, well, look, Northern Ireland is, is a smaller place. We we might want to go at a different pace 
to what's being proposed nationally. We might want to look at our own initiatives. We, want, we might want to look at what we can do ourselves, but we might also want to take advantage of anything that's available, particularly from the Chancellor, um, in terms of, of wider economic recovery schemes. And right now, we don't know where that lands. So forgive me if I'm vague, but it is because I'm trying very much to join the dots and not raise people's expectations out there whenever we know we have a challenging budget settlement. We know that there's no point in talking about lots of new stuff if we don't have additional funding to help make the recovery happen. So there's always going to have to be that trade-off. So I, I absolutely hear you, and I know how quickly I, I slipped back into sounding like a civil servant. Um, but we, we really do want to make sure that we can get momentum um, into a, a recovery plan once we're free to do it and that work that's that's all very boring civil service planning work that we're doing now okay jenny thank, thank you for that i'm going to open up the members now and ask uh pat sheehan uh if you'd like to ask questions pat uh thank you chair and and, and thank you jenny for your uh wide-ranging um contribution there and since you mentioned the voucher scheme let me ask you about that first of all my understanding is there was £90 million available for that uh, a voucher scheme, but the Department for the Economy wasn't able to deliver it and the money's going to be handed back. Have there been any suggestions made to the Minister for the Economy about alternatives to the voucher scheme so that that money can be kept here? Thanks. Um, well, I think I think Chris probably touched on this a bit in in his presentation. I know the Department for the Economy um, is is currently running something like seven or eight different support schemes, things that schemes that it wasn't running before the pandemic. Um, and I think um, you know they they really are at capacity in terms of getting out those various business support schemes, um, which are essential to to small and and to medium. Um, businesses right across Northern Ireland, and of course that has been those schemes have had to roll forward several times. So uh, I, I know uh, the finance minister has been very keen um, with executive colleagues to try and find alternative uses um, for any money, even at the centre, even if it's not for the department for the economy, if it can be brought into the centre and utilised elsewhere. I know. Um, uh, Minister Murphy is also working very hard to see if we can get rollover uh, arrangements so that we don't lose that money. Uh, and obviously, um, if, if we don't lose it, well, then we can look at it again in terms of a voucher scheme or some other scheme going forward. So I, I don't know, I wouldn't be over the detail of what the Department for the Economy might have brought forward, but I do know um, I, I do know that there's active work to try and make sure that that money doesn't get doesn't get lost, and that we try and find other uses for it. So it's not it's not an unreasonable question by any means, and it's one that's been asked um, of all of all ministers. I don't know whether either Mark or Andrew are aware of anything specific coming from the Department for the Economy, or whether yeah, I see Mark shaking his head. I think we're we're all trying to see across the piece whether or not we can make use of this money rather than lose it. But at the same time, I know Minister Murphy's been asking the Chancellor, uh, asking Treasury to, to allow us to hold on to it, because we are going to need money for recovery. There's no question about that. So um, he, he's been making the case, I know, supported by, by finance officials. Okay, thanks for that. And I, I want to ask you about the COVID task force, and, and you've mentioned the cross-departmental membership of that task force. And have you brought in any 
outside expertise, particularly in around public health? Well, the, the, the overall health protection piece is being led by, uh, led by the Department of Health um, and you know, with Michael McBride uh, and and his team, the chief nursing officer, that's where when we are not second guessing the work that is being done by the health professionals, what we are trying to do is supplement the work that's being that those that public health work with work on behavioural insights around um, around adherence uh, to and and um, compliance with the public health guidance with the restrictions um, i mean everybody is is very tired um of of the restrictions um we at least i think have had a period where the restrictions haven't changed for a, for for a few weeks and that has been helpful but we went through a phase where different parts of the island had different restrictions different parts of the uk um of great britain had different restrictions and the messaging was um you know had the potential to be confusing so the behavioral insights work that we're doing to help inform the public health messaging is is something that's underway so that's where the task force i suppose has access to resource that the public health officials don't maybe have the time or the access to and we're looking to see as we come out hopefully come out of the restrictions and um, we so how do we get people to focus on the things that really matter and how do we stress some of the positive benefits rather than always having negative messages so that behavioral insight work is is i suppose the key way in which the task force is, is working with the public health officials, but we are not bringing in any other experts to second guess. And I think, to be honest with you, when we look at the rollout of the vaccination programme, I think Northern Ireland has been doing exceptionally well there. Our, our delivery record um, is, is really very good. And, and it wouldn't, I think, be helpful to try and bring in, um, to, to, to bring in people who were perhaps second guessing that so it's really trying to add value to what's already being what's already being done yeah and uh, i mean hopefully the vaccination program will continue to roll out in the way it's anticipated to uh, my difficulty is that we have ended up in this cycle of lockdowns uh, in terms of our the combating the virus um, uh, and the leadership that has been given by the department of health uh, has been quite poor. Um, if we benchmark against other jurisdictions, uh, we have done very poorly. I mean, people always want to compare us to uh, our nearest neighbour, and why wouldn't they? Because uh, they have performed probably worse than almost any other country in the world. However, uh, there are other countries who haven't had to endure the, the endless cycles of lockdown, that their economies are performing well, uh, the the economies are opened up, the hospitality industry has opened up, sporting activities have opened up. So we haven't done well. Uh, and uh, and that and take take one example for example uh, take one example. We had the situation before Christmas where uh, Matt Hancock said that the virus was out of control in the south of England. Uh, that the new variant was becoming dominant. Uh, we then heard Boris Johnson say it was much more transmissible than the original variant, uh, and that 
there was a higher mortality associated with it. Yet the advice from the Department of Health was that unrestricted flights uh, into the north here didn't pose any significant risk. Yet now we're in a situation where the UK variant is actually dominant here. Now, it didn't waft in on the eastern breeze, so obviously it did pose a significant risk. Uh, and, and, I mean, I accept that the health department has the lead in the response to the pandemic, but what I'm saying to you is they haven't done a good job, and is it not about time uh, some other expertise was brought in to give advice on how we combat the virus. Thanks. So, I, I think I, I think it's um, it's this is it's difficult territory when you're a health professional, uh, and it's easy territory when, like me, um, you're you're an observer sitting looking at what's going on in different jurisdictions. I think a lot of jurisdictions um, have got it worse. Um, in terms of their messaging and in terms of their response, and it's been it's been one of the frustrations I think for us as officials that we haven't been able to get a better coordinated response across these islands, both north, south, and across uh, the various devolved administrations in Great Britain. There certainly is a better momentum now in in more recent months uh, for a coordinated uh, five nations approach. And there's a lot of discussion between the chief medical officers and between leading health officials right across um, the islands to try and better coordinate restrictions to make sure that we're not leaving loopholes and that we're not sending mixed messages. But that's difficult work because each jurisdiction wants to tailor its response as, as it sees best. One of the things the task force has been doing is looking at methodologies in other jurisdictions. What has worked where? and why, and could we apply uh, some of the lessons that have been learned elsewhere. So we are doing that piece of work, SIB are helping, uh, Strategic Investment Board are helping us with that piece of work as well. But that's really designed to help inform our public health officials. I think the executive has been very clear that it will take its, it will take its decisions based on the, the best public health advice available. So that remains our that remains the position. Doesn't mean we shouldn't look and see what others are doing. As you've as you've said, there are other jurisdictions that have taken different responses and, and been able to open up sporting venues and um, um, restaurants and hospitality and so on. But I think the difficulty is, and the sense is uh, at both political level and official level, that unless we coordinate across the islands, we potentially run the risk of, of we could do everything right in in here uh, in in the north, but that mightn't necessarily be matched by the well, same behaviour in, in the south or in England. And and the, the virus has shown itself to be um, uh, no, uh, uh, you know, not not any respecter of of borders, land or sea um, or people or populations. Yeah, and that, that that just brings me to my final question, Chair, just a short one. Has there been direct engagement, Jenny, between the task force and the the Dub Dublin government or officials? Yes, I've I've had several conversations with Martin Fraser and John Cullinan and senior officials in the Taoiseach's office 
Um, so we, we have had a dialogue about how better to align our advice. The timing of the restrictions, I think, is a key one as well. So we went first in terms of extending our restrictions to the 5th of March and following dialogue, um, uh, the Irish uh, government decided to go for that same date in terms of its restrictions. So I think that's just one example of where we did manage to get alignment. And I think the more we can do that and the more we can collaborate um, in terms of the timing and the nature of restrictions, um, I think that's beneficial to, to um, the economy, both both north and south, and easier in terms of messaging as well, I think, if there's, if there's greater certainty. Okay, thanks for that. Thank you, Chair. Okay, thank you, Pat. Okay, next up then is uh, going to call Emma Sheeran in and then just acknowledging that there's nobody else is in. Okay, there's loads of indicators. Yeah, go on ahead there, Emma. Thank you very much, Chair, and thanks, Jenny, for your presentation and the, the questions that you've answered thus far. I wanted to ask a question. Um, I know we're over a year from NDNA now, and there were a number of agreements set out in NDNA, um, commitments that were made as part of the process that got Stormont back up and running after the, the impasse that we'd had for almost three years prior to that. And a lot of the conversation that we're having in the political discourse this past week are around Brexit, the protocol, rights, concerns that different people from different communities have around everything that's going on. And a lot of the agreements set out in NDNA related to rights. And some of the things that I'm thinking of now, I know I have asked at, at previous occasions, I've asked um, the, the First and Deputy First Minister about this, and I wanted to know if you had a, a plan around particularly Acne Gaelic. I know we've seen, we've seen lots of graffiti uh, over the course of the past number of days, and, and one item that we'd seen was incredibly incendiary messages around the, the Irish language, which obviously is a, is a threat to no one. I wondered if you had a plan around that and the implementation of the Stormont House Agreement. I know that my own uh, comrade, my, my party colleague, uh, Maria Farrell, who's a TD from Galway, had asked the Taoiseach about that this afternoon, about, about his commitment to the Stormont House Agreement and, and implementation of that. And I, I wondered what your thoughts were on that. Okay, so... Um, the executive clearly has a, a lot of uh, a, a lot of competing priorities. Um, those that are in NDNA, those that are in the program for government, um, and uh, we have uh, we have agreed now that there will be, a, I suppose, a, for want of a better word, I'll call it a workshop for the executive to talk about priorities um, and uh, focus on what is deliverable. Uh, particularly in light of the difficult budget settlement for for the entire Northern Ireland civil service, so there are lots of there are lots of commitments and there are lots of priorities there. Some of those commitments do involve um, uh, the the UK government as well, um, and we've touched on one of those one of those already. So there needs to be further dialogue there. But I would be hopeful that we would get a better sense of what the executive's program and priorities will, will look like once we've had that workshop, because we don't, as you know, we don't have endless resources. A lot of the civil service resources have been you know, refocused to, to address the, the, the pandemic. So I think the opportunity to take stock, to look at the, the program for government priorities, to look at those NDNA commitments, uh, see where we are, and and see what is possible, particularly in light of the budget settlement, um, I think would be would be a good thing because there are, again there are lots of expectations there and lots of commitments 
um, that the executive needs to progress. Um, um, I don't I don't know the, about the uh, specific uh, point you made about Athnagelaga, whether Mark, um, I don't know whether you can, I see you're nodding, so yeah. hopefully you could give them some specifics on that. Yeah, well, uh, clearly the context you've just described, Jenny, is, is the context in which ministers and, and officials are all operating in terms of the other key issues that, that they're facing and, and, and the amount of ministerial and, and other time there is to address some of these issues. But in terms of, of the, the rights, language and identity and the three bills, you know, um, the first and deputy first have made clear their commitment uh, uh, to, to have those bills introduced and passed in this mandate. Um, and we have established a division within the department. It's a small division which has taken forward uh, work and the priority work that is necessary to allow those bills to come forward and to pass. So preparations um, have been made around that. Uh, and really, it, it comes back into the context of, of what Jenny has just said around the um, the resourcing and the ministerial time and the assembly time in order to, to be able to progress that. But first and deputy first, I make clear the commitment and preparatory work is ongoing on that. Thank you both for that. Sorry, Jenny, were you going to come back in? I was just going to say, you know, the, the, the legislative timetable is tight, as you will know, uh, and there's there are a lot of bills there um, which ministers would like to be progressed. Um, it it, uh, it certainly was a, a focus of conversation amongst the permanent secretaries group last week in terms of what what can we actually get through given the limited legislative timetable? But as Mark says, that that you know the the commitment from first and deputy is is there. So we're working on the basis that we will we will get the go ahead to to proceed with with those bills. And um, but it does need to come it does need to come soon uh, because the, the the legislative window is tight. Thanks for that, Jenny and Mark. And I mean, I appreciate everything that you said. I'm, I'm on the record, as previously I haven't said, you know, I understand that priorities have to be prioritized. And given the year that we've just had, that no one could have ever anticipated, it's, you know, it's important that the people are directing their energies where it is most needed at any particular time. And obviously COVID ha has taken over and now we've got everything that's going on as, as we actually complete Brexit and as that has happened. But I'm just conscious because, you know, if we're if we're going to move forward in a rights based society and if we're going to, you know, when you talk about the three particular bills, we're we're in a, a we're in a phase now where we're probably in constitutional change and we can see everything that's happened over the course of the past number of days with the you know the threats of threats and that led to withdrawal of staff and you know, people talking about things being unworkable and what we should have is you know solutions to that we should have people trying to find solutions on the ground and instead of instead of pausing checks and letting things escalate there there should be sort of clear direction from leaders that that, that they're not going to you know bow down or that they're going to engage and, and work these things through and I think that those bills are so important in doing that and in protecting identities and making people feel valued within the society. And as we move forward, I, th I think that's important. So I, I think it's important we don't lose sight of that. I, I, I take on board that obviously we're, we're working with finite resources and that we are in a, in a tight time frame. And I get that. The other thing I wanted to refer to as well was just the focus for, for EQIAs and making sure that all the section 75 and it was, it, it's there's a requirement there to pay due regard and that that's happening across uh departments and that 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 equality and a rights-based approach is, is always to the forefront of, of people's minds thank you 
Okay, thank you, Emma. Maybe, Emma, just a little bit on the, on the back of what you're saying. Danny, I, I hear what you're saying um, there about, you know, that there are legislative constraints and, and there's a heavy timetable, but I must, I, I'm, uh, I sit as a member of the business committee and um, we're not seeing much legislation coming from the executive overall to actually be delivered. And so much so that, we stripped out the private members' business and adjournment debates and others so that we would just leave simply legislative work because we understood that there was a considerable amount of it to be done uh, and to try and make only the necessary work uh, undertaken during the COVID times. Next week, we've reduced down to one sitting, not two, because there isn't enough legislation coming forward from the executive. So maybe you could go back to the department and, and square that out as the you're saying that there's lots of legislation and a backlog and very limited time, and yet we're sitting in the assembly actually reducing the number of sittings that we're having because there isn't enough uh, legislation coming forward from yourselves. But I know that the speaker has taken the right um, to the executive as well, just to seek some clarity on that. So I think we need to get that concept bottomed out because I've heard that from others as a response to why things aren't happening. Um, and Emma makes a valid point that these things need to take place. So if we've got the time, uh, we just need the, the nod from yourselves. Thanks, thanks, Chair. And, and I hear the message very clearly. Um, but it, it is with ministers to decide what, uh, you know, what legislation is coming forward. Um, Mark has, has alluded to uh, the readiness within um, TEO to progress uh, the legislation that we think would fall on uh, on our side, but this is across the piece. I think there needs to be um, this agreement on what will go forward and what the priorities are. Um, but I hear the message back from you. Um, uh, I understand okay. it. Okay. Next up, then we have uh, Martina. Please, if you want to ask your questions, please. We'll just give Martina a moment to uh, unmute and. Okay, okay, there you are. There wasn't on technically. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Jenny. Uh, good to see you after many, many years. I think the the last time that you and I exchanged some views, it was about Project Kelvin, and yeah. trying to ensure that uh, that it was located where the EU said it should have been, and that was in Derry. Uh, little did I know then I was going to find myself in the EU. Um, can I just pick up on a few things, Jenny? I'm not going to go over it. You probably heard my contribution uh, to to the last sitting uh, with the officials, but I just would like to reiterate my disappointment um, in relation to the High Street Task Force and the composition of the membership of that task force um, for the reference group. And I'm hoping that that is something that you would have heard and you'll take on board and address. And I'm not looking for Derry to become some place which is consulted, but that it has a place at the table. So I just want to repeat that, Chair. Um, Jen that. Okay, Jenny, the COVID recovery, if I could talk to you about that in the context of an equal just recovery, because many of us representatives have been engaging with constituents and we are aware that the poorest have been the hardest hit. So there's a terminology is being used to build back better. And in building back better, um, we certainly don't want to go back to the way things were. 
So I know the anti-poverty strategy is located in the Department for Communities, but it's picking up on the commentary that Emma made, uh, which I wholeheartedly concur with. And maybe to ask you about the EQIA, particularly around, as we all know, um, the functions um, in terms of policy and service delivery, that an assessment needs to be made that precedes any decisions by minister ministers, in this case, about the impact of the quality impact assessment. So where is that at with regards to the budget? I know you've had an uplift, uh, even though there's a flat uh, budget in terms of a standstill budget, but where is the quality impact assessment done that it's not just the functionality of the budgetary process, but it is any potential change to policy or service delivery as a consequence of perhaps a standstill budget and an assessment made as to how that's going to have an impact on the Section 75 categories. And I say that in the context of us knowing that the poorest is hit the hardest, the context of particularly women, how they are in part-time work, how they could be hit, and just an assessment that is going to be made by yourself um, across all of departments and how that is going to impact um, on the decisions that ministers make. Okay. Um, um, forgive me. I I don't quite. I'm not quite sure that I understood exactly what the the context for this was. Is this an EQIA of the anti-poverty strategy? No. Um, the sorry. EQIA, EQIA of the department's budget. Oh, of the department's budget. Okay. Well, look. I'm I'm I am going to let Mark lead on this. Sorry. I I just picked you up wrong there. I thought it was a specific thing. Okay. Well, we currently have our draft budget, Martina, uh, and um, what we're currently doing is looking at what the potential impact of that is. Um, and part of that is looking at um, how, uh, if we if we take uh, uh, various decisions, what impact those decisions are likely to have on the different groups that you've just described. Um, we're still at the early stages of that. Uh, because we only got the budget uh, fairly recently. We need to look at the various options that there are and discuss those with ministers. Uh, and in discussing those with ministers to identify then any impact that those will have on the different different groups <clears throat> and any potential mitigations that there are. Um, in terms of our budget, I, I mean, the, the bulk of our budget, uh, if you set aside things like victims' payments and you set aside historic institutional abuse, which are big, big, chunky, items, the bulk of our baseline budget um, actually goes on supporting our arms like bodies, which goes on supporting things like the Victims and Survivors Service, the Commission for Victims and Survivors, on the, the Equality Commission, on the, the Community Relations Council, uh, all of which are actually, uh, well, many of those are, are actually delivering services out, which relate to equality. Obviously, the Equality Commission is there providing that advice and support to those who have, who have particular issues and, 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 and supporting them. Victims and survivors are focused very much on a particular disadvantaged uh, 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 group. Um, we have the CRC um, and our other funding around good, good relations, which is trying to, to uh, uh, develop that work and is impacting uh, across both uh, in, in terms of religion, but also in terms of deprivation. Um, because many of the uh, the the, uh, the, pro the the programs are focused on on uh, deprived areas, so that is something we 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 have built into our process. We're in the process of doing it. It's not complete yet because. As I say, we're still working through the draft budget. We are looking at what our options are around how we manage flat cash, and it's going to be difficult. Uh, and looking at, 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 at then what those implications uh, would be in uh, equality terms. 
And I say that will inform decisions that ministers that will then will then take. Um, okay. Well, I, I just think, Chair. I think uh, Mark, you'll 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 be aware that we would like to be kept across the process of the EQAA yeah. so that we are informed about what ultimate assessment is going to be given to ministers that's going to precede that decision that is taken by the ministers based on the information. Can can I ask um, in relation to the protocol? And I know, Chair, you made some opening comments and, Jenny, you had referenced it then when you were talking in your delivery. And is there a role for the, um, the executive office and, Jenny, even across departments in terms of your own role as a civil service um, to make sure that there's awareness raising? Because the last thing we need is inaccurate information being imparted to people who have obviously got different views and opinions with regards to this protocol. Now, there's no credible alternative. I can say that as a former MEP. There's some people who have proposed magical solutions, and we didn't. We knew that they were not going to work. And given that the protocol protects a Good Friday Agreement, the All-Ireland Economy, and ensures no hardening of the border, for instance, one of the things I was aware of yesterday, hardening of the border in Ireland, and we know there has been a border in the IRC for almost 100 years, but there has been, and I acknowledge there has been a different change to the operation of that border now, and that needs resolved, and we need a resolution to some of the trading adjustment shocks because of the last minute of the decisions that have been made. But Jenny, um, we had one of the ministers in front of the, on the floor of the um, chamber yesterday, the agriculture minister, I know he's only standing in, but for instance, when I was able to impart in the NISDRA statistics show that the North sells more to the EU and the rest of the world than what it does to Britain. That is not to diminish what happens with Britain in the sales of goods here. It's a crucially important market. Um, but the minister in response uh, was nearly lambasting me for being, um, he said, inaccurate with the information. And it's unfortunate about, you know, any just impartial observer going to do just a little bit of research on Google would have been able to know that the minister was either not across his brief, and I'm sure it's difficult to make a good day one anyway, so uh, that can be forgiven, but uh, given out information that is factually inaccurate. And that's something we need to inform, uh, avoid. So that's why I'm asking you, Jenny, about awareness raising, because some people are concerned there's some things being orchestrated at the moment, attempts being made to undermine the protocol. Some people have described what's happening as a little bit of theatric, theatrics. Um, I know it's it's difficult and it's actually dangerous, uh, some of the, the things that is being happening out there, uh, whether it is shows of strength or whatever the case may be, how it is being presented. So we need people informed we need people getting factual information and we need to encourage ministers not to be feeding into an inaccurate um, perception of how things are so that when they are, for instance, answering MLAs, that they do it from an informed position, that they give accurate information. They might have a different view of how things are rolling out, but uh, if we can, we should encourage that kind of factual, accurate information and that needs to happen at a ministerial level. And look, I, I wouldn't disagree with you at all um, on the provision and the need for the provision of consistent 
evidence-based uh, factual information and that's absolutely where TEO does have a role and we do provide that information um, to ministers. As you know, there is an executive meeting on Tuesdays specifically to focus on EU exit matters. Uh, the briefing papers are, are provided obviously to all ministers and all ministers will be given the same uh, the same update on what's actually happening on the ground. There are very regular and thorough readouts uh, of, of what's happening and what the actual um, the, the actual trading figures are and the factual information and the evidence of what's happening on the ground. I don't know whether or not Andrew McCormick is still um, is still here. I can't see him, and I know he has another meeting, um, but he may. If he's around, um, obviously Andrew's role was created specifically to deal with uh, everything around um, around EU exit, um, and I would I would let him come in just since that is his area. If he's if he's still here, just very briefly because I, I can see the uh, other reading is about to start. But very briefly, I think what you've said is the main, the main point. Absolutely right that we work with uh, also through Executive Information Service and all the departments. We also work with. Uh, colleagues in Whitehall uh, on the provision of information so that so that everything is about making clear what is the factual position, what are the issues that businesses, citizens need to be aware of, having very straightforward factual information. Uh, that some of that did take a long time to work out, partly because the, the deal was only done on, on Christmas Eve. Uh, so there are some things that could not be made clear until after that. And then there's further things still being worked on. And of course, uh, there is still work to be done on clarifying, resolving, phasing in uh, all of the work that's currently underway. That, that means that we need to get a, a very clear message out. And, and we've had innumerable cases where businesses have been in touch wanting specific solutions to specific problems. And often that's because there's been a degree of confusion or uh, you know, something hasn't got through uh, or messages haven't been picked up. So, so absolutely right, and, and uh, we have a team within Executive Information Service who are part of part of that work uh, and part of making sure that there's fact available for all. Um, but I think I probably need to um, need to break off, as I think everybody except uh, except one is, is still is ready to start the next meeting. I'm, I'm very sorry to have to leave. Okay, but so someone help anyway, Martina. No problem. Thank you, Andrew, and thank you, Chair, and thank you, Jenny, uh, and yourself, Mark, as well. Okay, thanks very much for that. Um, okay, is there any other member wishing to ask a question if they want to indicate by raising their hand? I don't see any others at the moment, so I'm going to take it that there aren't any other questions that want to be raised. Okay, um, Jenny and Mark and, and to um, Andrew as well, thank you very much for your attendance here this afternoon. Um, it's been good to both meet you and hear of the priorities and the work that you're doing in the department. Uh, we absolutely get that it is a very difficult time uh, and that there are competing priorities and competing budgets for the work that you're doing. Um, but we continue to offer you um, our best wishes in the work that you do uh, and absolutely no hesitation in, in doing the cross-examining that we have to do as well, if needed as well. But um, thank you very much for, for your attendance today. Thank you. Thank you. I, thank, thank you, Chair. And I, I look forward to coming back to the committee with uh, something more granular to talk to you about in terms of the task force. Um, and, and hopefully we'll have the opportunity to do that in, in the coming weeks and months. Okay. So thank, thank you, you very, very much. much. Thanks, everybody. Okay. Uh, members, is there anything that anybody wishes to raise on the back of that? Any correspondence that any member would like to see uh, sent? Or are we happy enough just to note what we've... Okay. 
happy enough to note then. I think we can move on then uh, to item seven, which is the forward work program. Um, it is on page 28 of the meeting pack. Uh, we have a few uh, items that have, uh, I think maybe some of these have even changed, Michael, because we were talking before the meeting, trying to get things slotted in. Do you want to give us an update on that just so that we know uh, I don't want to get it wrong? <laughs> uh, yeah, yes, Chair, no, no problem at all. Um, there's, there's a number of things uh, that we may move around, uh, partly because um, we, we've, we've been asked, as you know, as committees, to keep uh, to keep business as short as possible because of the uh, the current situation. Um, and so we, we, we had we had the ombudsman, uh, the public services ombudsman was booked in for the twenty fourth of February. Um, the, the suggestion is to move that to the 17th of February. Um, we have agreed with the department to have them to come up to talk about uh, the program for government consultation uh, on the 24th. And we'd also uh, penciled in the 3rd of, sorry, the 24th of March, uh, and also penciled in the 3rd of March for spending plans, but we've asked the department if they can bring that forward the 24th of February as well. Um, the, 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 the 10th of March, uh, we had originally asked the commissions to come up and see, uh, see us again to talk about the dedicated mechanism. We had agreed uh, last year to have them up every quarter. Um, in order to um, clear the 10th of March, we're, we're asking the commissions maybe to come in April time uh, because the, the Shannard um, uh, session might take place then uh, and we wanted to give a lot of time for that because their reporting date is the 31st of March. So a combination of moving a few things around to accommodate things but also uh, to ensure that the meetings are, are, are relatively short rather than being too onerous for, for everybody. Okay thank you for that Michael yeah and I mean certainly just um, to highlight that you know some of the presentations we kind of know that they're going to be a, a 45 minute job and then we can see others that really members would want to have an hour and a half to, to be able to implement them so it's just putting all of those various blocks and places to build up the meetings that we don't have three presentations that are an hour and a half back to back and then the next week three that are half an hour back to back so we've just taken a few of those and juggled them around but definitely next week's uh, committee papers will have that all uh, fleshed out whenever we confirm with people but I suppose something that is of note is really that between now and Easter we're, we're packed with all of the presentations. Every week has got um, several presentations in. So um, thank you for that, Michael. Members, any points that anybody wants to make on the Forward Work Programme? Okay, thank you. Um, item eight is the correspondence. There are several pieces of correspondence in the pack. Is there any, are members content to note what's there? And is there any issues that anybody wants to raise with them? Okay, that's fine. Then item nine is any other business. Is there any other business that any member would like to raise? Okay, we're always glide through these bits at the end. It's excellent. Um, then we can go to item 10, which is the date, time, and place of the next meeting. And members, it will be next week, Wednesday, the 10th of February. And once again, we will be a, a virtual meeting via Starleaf. Thank you all very much for your attendance here today. And I wish you all a good evening. Thank you. Thank you, Chair. Cheers. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30. 
office is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee.